probably wouldn't understand after being alone so much. I'm not alone. Got this boat for a friend. You don't lie to me. Don't cut my throat when I'm asleep. Lana, that is the third saddest thing I've heard today. Pam told me about a little girl who drowned trying to save a puppy. Jesus, what was the second saddest? The puppy drowned too. to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 97 and 98, which begin with Helen describing what adoption is like in Waterworld, and end with the Mariner handing the crayon back to Helen. So we are still in the middle of this night scene between Helen and the Mariner, and he has just commented about how even though... Enola and her don't look at all alike. She certainly mothers her like someone who is her mother. Yeah, so we get some exposition. I think done fairly well. Mm-hmm. I've seen plenty of exposition done worse. So right. I'm pretty satisfied with him directly asking about Enola's parentage and her answering with the story. I want to dive right into the book because there is a little description that pops in between the Mariner making his comment about, oh, you act like her mother, and her launching into this story about six years ago with Enola. I'm not her mother. You act like it. The endless sea was black and charcoal and gray and blue, and the wind whispered across its surface, trust him, you can trust him. Ew, it's kind of gross. (laughs) It's kind of weird, right? First of all, the sea is on his side. Because he's a fish man. Yeah, he and the sea are BFFs. Yeah, it's not valid. (laughs) The book is pretty close to what's in the movie, so this is what it says. About six years ago, she said quietly, a basket floated into Oasis with a child in it, a baby, a little girl. Enola, he said. She nodded. Everyone wanted to push her back out to sea. That was the law of the elders. But I said I'd take her. She was so precious, and I had some position in the atoll, with my store. So they listened to me, but they said if I wanted her so badly, I could never bear a child myself. She would have to be my child, my one and only child. You agreed to this? There was no choice, and I had no man in my life. Frankly, I never thought I wanted anyone in my life. Not anyone in the atoll, anyway. That's a clever way of them letting us know she's totally single. Oh, yeah. They spell it out in the book, for sure. Yes. I want to take a close look at the timeline, because Tina Majorino was 10 years old when they released this movie, 10 years old in 1995. So if we wanted to have Enola be around that same age, she's, let's say, nine years old. And if she arrived six years ago, that means that in that basket full of dark dirt from dry land was a three-year-old. I'm a little surprised that the major quirk they have with Enola is that she likes to draw and nothing a bit more serious because she was a three-year-old in a basket all alone in the middle of the ocean for who knows how long. Yeah, who knows how long. 
I really question the survivability of that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, three-year-olds, they explore. They're still figuring out the world. They just learned to walk not that long ago. So getting a three-year-old to not climb out of that basket and fall in the ocean feels like a stretch. It must have been enclosed. It had to have been enclosed. Otherwise, seriously, how do you get that three-year-old to stay in the basket? Sure, you could say, well, maybe she's not the exact age as the actress. Maybe she is younger. Well, in that case, if Enola is only seven years old and she was under 18 months when that basket floated into the atoll, babies like that can't go for prolonged periods of time without eating. No, they can't. An 18-month-old could feed themselves if presented with food, but they can't prepare food in any way. They can't open packaging. They might be able to, if there was food, in a basket with a basket lid, I think. They'd be able to open the basket lid and get the food inside. But they would also have no sense of rationing. Mm -hmm. They would just eat the food whenever they felt like it, and the food wouldn't necessarily last long enough. The same thing with water. I just think so many supplies would be lost to the ocean and to all over their face and spilled all over the basket. You know how kids eat? Mm -hmm. It's crazy. The whole reason that the Moses story is so plausible is because Moses' mother put him in the basket on one part of the river and then sent him a fairly short distance down the river. Short enough that his older sister could follow the basket from the shoreline. Most of this stuff I'm going off of is the DreamWorks animated feature, Prince of Egypt. Oh, yeah, which was excellent. So much better than sitting down and watching the four-hour Ten Commandments from the, you know... Which I'm pretty sure we've done. Cecil B. DeMille era, I think it was. Anyway, that wasn't such a long trip. You can look at it and be like, oh, yeah, that's that makes sense, but... For it to be a short trip between dry land and the atoll meant that the atoll just didn't see dry land. They floated right by it. What if the baby basket didn't come straight from dry land, but was transported to the area of the atoll by a ship and was then pushed off from the ship? Like the ship was sent out maybe by somebody who didn't have much longer to live. Saying, okay, the last thing you need to do is you need to find a home for this child. So this ailing person or old person sets sail, and maybe they don't make it to the atoll, and with their dying breath, they push the child off, or they want the child to be anonymous, so they do it that way anyways. I could see that happening, Thinking forward to the end of the movie, I don't think we really know anything about her people, so it's really hard to surmise really how she got there to the atoll. I feel so much better about the idea of Enola being in a boat with someone else, and then maybe the boat started going down, maybe their health was ailing, but if she was sent out as a life preserving method yeah something bad if has you happened, stay you with me you will die so go maybe they got attacked by slavers imagine a baby with slavers i'd be like oh a gold mine i like the idea of it being a last ditch survival method of okay i'm gonna toss you out and it just is what it is and i'm gonna stay here and die when it comes to thinking of a toddler or infant in a basket 
and I lean more towards the three, four-year-old in a definitely, basket. Definitely three, four-year-old. I imagine that there has to be some sort of psychological trauma. The TV show Dexter comes to mind because that show is all about someone who has urges to murder because they were traumatized as a toddler. There's a whole explanation in the first series of exactly what messed up this kid. And the whole reason he hunts other serial killers to kill them is because he feels this drive to murder. So it surprises me that Enola doesn't, I don't know, fear being in small enclosed places. Because if the basket was sealed up tight and she couldn't get out, and there's all of this water and sloshing and moving around, I can imagine her being claustrophobic. Or, the opposite of that, if the basket she floated in on was open, I could see her being incredibly afraid of being out in the open ocean on a single floating platform. Mm -hmm. The idea of being on a little boat outside of an atoll could be very terrifying for her. And they don't give her either of those? No, they don't. In fact, they make her very happy and well-adjusted. She's not unhappy about anything, which does seem to be a stretch. Yeah. So let's cut back a little bit to the subject of her drawing. And we've gone back and forth a couple of times before about where this drawing drive comes from mm -hmm. to the possibility of it being a bit supernatural. Well, now that we have given her an age where she may have actually seen these things being three or four, with this added knowledge, do you think it's possible she is drawing from memory? That she would actually remember from the age of three or four horses and trees and whatnot? I've always been a strong supporter of subconscious memory, that even though she doesn't know what these things are called or exactly what their function are, the fact that she saw them at at least one time is good enough for me. Okay. I am more on board with that because we've been able to age her to three or four. Prior to this story and doing some math, I was picturing a baby, tops a year old. So that's why I so easily ruled out that subconscious memory. Mm. But three or four, I'm willing to consider that it is subconscious memory. I still like the idea of it being supernatural in some way, that mm -hmm. she is a seer, that she is having prophetic visions. I like that too. And I did concede in the last episode. That swimming drawing. Mm-hmm. Yup. It throws things off. When Helen mentions that everyone wanted to shove Anola back out to sea and that that was the law, it's another instance where the dwellers of the atoll are not painted in the best compassionate light. Frankly, it doesn't surprise me because we saw how they treated other drifters, people in boats hanging out outside the gate. You're right. It doesn't paint them in a good light or a compassionate light. Although I understand and I'm on board. I mean... Your choices are to throw off the balance of a delicate ecosystem that could kill tens and maybe even a hundred people or one child dies. Like, I know it sucks, but yeah, the child's got to go. How do you feel about them forbidding Helen from having a biological child of her own? Oh yeah, totally fine. She gets one kid. This is her kid. In our real world, when parents adopt a child, that is their child now. It no longer matters 
that the child is not biologically yours. This is your child. This is also coming from somebody who has no desire to have biological children. So I don't feel that drive. So I don't understand that drive. And it does not affect me in any way. From that non-biological drive point of view, it doesn't matter where the child came from. She said she had no man in her life. Like she had no immediate plans Mm -hmm. of having her own. So that kind of tells me that she's of a similar mindset as me, where I do not feel that drive to procreate. I do not wish for a child of my own. Similarly to me, if a child came along and I was the only one, if we were the only ones who were capable of taking care of that child, we would do it probably. If we have a child, it doesn't make a difference to me whether that child is biological or adopted. Zeroing in more on how the atoll is managed, I imagine that they have a sort of waiting list when it comes to which of the women are allowed to have children. It's explained in black and white later on in the movie that a child is only born when someone dies, and so you probably have people like the young woman who was offered to the mariner waiting in a line to see, okay, who's going to be the next person to become pregnant because they need that genetic diversity. You can't just have one woman having all of the children because all of the children have the same genetic makeup. Right, right. So in saying that Enola is your only child, you do not get a biological child. They are cutting off an avenue of unique genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. But I think there's enough childbearing women that that's okay. They're willing to pay that price to bring Enola into the atoll. Plus, it makes sense as a punishment because in adopting this child, Helen is jumping the line. She was probably not the next person in line to have a child on the atoll when a drifter came through right. or something to that effect. So she, by adopting this child, potentially denied another woman who was up next in the list from being able to bear a child of okay her own. i definitely see where you're going with that absolutely i agree it's like jumping the line on an organ donor list exactly which is why i feel like when the elders said if you want her so bad you're off the breeding list right i interpret that as a punishment because of her going an avenue that is outside of the norm i didn't really see it as a punishment although what we do know of the elders Yeah, they meant it as a punishment. I see it as a natural consequence. She was only ever going to get to have one child. So you don't get to adopt one and biologically have one. This is it. This is your child. But I do think she is being punished for jumping the line. And that may also create animosity amongst the breeding stock and solidified Helen's outsider status. Not only does she now have this mystery child, but she alienated a group of women by cutting in line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pointed out in the book she had some status in the community because the trading barge was hers to manage. Mm -hmm. If she had been just a regular atoller, they might not have allowed her to do this. That's true, and that does smack of economic privilege. She gets to do something that the average citizen wouldn't get to do because... She has a position of economic power. Mm -hmm. Which I don't begrudge her. I don't see that as a negative in her (laughs) pro and con (laughs) spreadsheet. I think it's not great. 
I think it's another thing that would have added animosity amongst the women of the Atoll because they would have looked at this situation as Helen using her power and influence to muscle past them in a part of the natural course of life that they are eager to participate in and they are forced to wait. And here she comes all high and mighty saying, no, do not send that random child back out to see I'm going to take over. As far as Helen is concerned, it was compassion, but I can see how people on the Atoll would see that as selfishness. Mm-hmm. I see it too. One of the ways that the Atoll works is that everybody has to be selfless. Everybody needs to be working for the community. And Helen, it wasn't a selfish act. It was a selfless act that she wanted to save this child. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't selfish individually, but looking from the point of view of the whole, it was selfish. It makes sense that Helen would be more open to outsiders because when an outsider comes to the atoll, what's the first place they go to? The trading barge. Yes. That also means she has a, for what it's worth, a wider world's view. Mm -hmm. She talks to all these people and the community at large probably stays away from traders because there's a stigma mm -hmm. about outsiders. So they stay away, but she's there up front talking to them and hearing about the rest of the world. Hearing all of this talk about how Enola would have died otherwise, the Mariner replies by saying, by asking so. And Helen gets a little passive aggressive here by saying it's called compassion. Oh, you probably wouldn't understand after being alone so much. It's a little passive aggressive. It is. I just think it wasn't necessary. Like, the mayor takes it well. He doesn't, like, take offense to that statement. But just because the mariner is alone doesn't mean he doesn't understand compassion. I mean, he doesn't. Compassion is a luxury that a drifter cannot afford. But she's making assumptions about him. She doesn't know him at all. And I don't know. I don't love the things that she puts on him in mm -hmm. this conversation between using compassion and pity. Yeah. I don't think either of those statements are really necessary from her. The Mariner gets a little defensive, saying that he's not alone. Oh, I love this. He's got this boat for a friend. It don't lie to me. Don't cut my throat when I'm asleep. I absolutely love these lines from him, mostly because... A few lines down the road, he's going to bring up the fact that Enola draws so much. And Helen says she's like a mirror. And similarly, these statements from the Mariner are reflecting what he has received from other people. He has received not friendship. He has received people lying to him. Mm -hmm. People have tried to kill him in his sleep. These things that he appreciates specifically about his boat is the treatment he's received from people. And that is so sad. The Mariner doesn't get to describe his relationship with the boat in the book. It simply says that he said nothing in response to the compassion line. As I'm thinking about this situation, I imagine what it would be like if Max didn't have a dog in Road Warrior and he was truly alone because Max had a dog. He had a companion that was actually alive. I don't think Max would put himself in a situation where the only other thing in the world that he considered to be a friend was the Interceptor. The Interceptor was a tool. It was a means of conveyance. It was his home. But it wasn't his friend. That was Dog. 
or in Thunderdome. That was the monkey. Yeah, he does tend to have actual animal companions. And in Fury Road, he doesn't. When we meet him in Fury Road, he has gone a bit wild. Mm -hmm. Because he didn't have a pet. Because he didn't have a pet. These statements from the Mariner really highlight what people do mentally when alone. Right. It's one thing to give your boat a name or to give your car pronouns. It's another thing to look at your vehicle as my only friend in this world. I'm not sure if it's sad necessarily, but it is a little sad to think of. It is a little sad to think of. Although I also feel a great amount of hope for him because he is still able to form attachments that are built on companionship. His mind sees his boat as a companion. Mm -hmm. And so he has formed a friendship with this boat. That means that he is still capable of forming friendships. I would rather hear him talk about going to specific atolls and seeing specific people. As if every atoll he stumbles across, he makes friends with one person in that atoll. So mm -hmm. that way when he stumbles across that atoll again, he looks for that one person. Right. He has somebody to say hi to and catch up with. I would prefer that in the long run. I think that's asking too much of the Mariner, especially the statements that we get about people lying to him and trying to kill him. Mm. I think that is the sort of treatment he receives when he makes it to atolls and trading outposts. I don't think there are people to be friendly to him. Well, that's even more sad. That is more sad. And I'm really okay with him being friends with his boat. His next line after that, it gives me a place to be. That seriously speaks to me. Having a place that you can always go to is incredibly important in our human psyche. Equating this with the homeless problem that we have here in the United States so there are, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, I would guess, of homeless people who don't have a place to be. They have no home base. They have no place where, by default, they go there. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly damaging. I know that a particular issue with homelessness is children and trying to get homeless children to go to school and to do well in school is incredibly difficult because when they're not in school, they have nowhere else to be. There's no sense of permanence in their yes. life. And how important that is to being able to get a good education. So the fact that he has that place, people might classify him as homeless because he doesn't have an atoll that he belongs to, because he's a drifter, because he's a trader, he is a mariner. They might call him homeless, but he certainly doesn't see himself that way. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. He's... He has a home. And just because that home doesn't have a home doesn't mean it can't be home. Yeah. This harkens back to a video that I saw on Facebook once where it was a featured story about a young woman and the headline was, Young Woman Chooses Homelessness. And the whole story is about her living in her car and over the course of the story, it's revealed that she's not so much homeless as much as living a nomadic lifestyle, mm -hmm. traveling from place to place, picking up jobs as she goes. People do it all the time, yeah. living out of their vehicles, 
not because they've been kicked out for economic reasons, but because they like to stay mobile. Yes. And that's what he's doing here. He's not homeless. He's a nomad, which is honestly something they could easily add into the lexicon of this movie. Is it his choice? Or has he been shunned by society because he is a fish man? And I think it's kind of both. Yeah. His choice and not his choice. (laughs) I don't necessarily want to say that the Mariner chose the nomad life. I think the nomad life chose him. And while he may not have started out his life thinking, oh, I'm going to drift from place to place, by now, it's a daily choice that he makes to not try to settle down. Agreed. But Helen hears all of this, and she says, I pity you, really. And the Mariner asks what pity is. So I looked up the dictionary. Pity, as a noun, has two definitions, one being the sympathetic sorrow for one suffering, distressed, or unhappy, and the other one being something to be regretted. Okay, so it's in the same family of emotions as compassion. Right. I I feel sorry for you. I feel compassionate sorrow for you. Yeah. So she's really bouncing off, not his last line, but his line before that, where he said, it don't lie to me, don't cut my throat when I'm asleep. Yeah. At least I hope so, because his last line gives me a place to be. That is incredibly hopeful and does not deserve her pity. No. But the line before that, yeah, because yeah. she sees what I saw, that he's grateful that the boat doesn't lie to him and try and kill him because that's what people do to him. She's feeling sorrow for the suffering that he experienced in his life to think immediately of someone cutting his throat while he sleeps. Yeah. (laughs) So I think where I'm landing with this is that these lines are out of order because the way that it's written, her pity is in response to gives me a place to be. And that doesn't match up. That doesn't make any sense. So I feel like it really ought to have gone. It don't lie to me. Don't cut my throat when I'm asleep. I pity you really. And then he could rebut with, well, it gives me a place to be. Something like that. The order that's in now does not jive with me. Maybe mentioning it gives him a place to be as the first thing. And then start listing all of the terrible things that people bring with them. Yes. There you go. So he asks what pity is. Helen responds by saying, you don't know. And the Mariner says very plainly, if I knew, I wouldn't ask. And Helen gives up all attempts to explain it to him. I don't understand. And that's kind of insulting to him. Like, oh, if you don't know what pity is, then you couldn't possibly be smart enough to understand my explanation of what pity is. I think what she's really saying is that she can't define pity. Right. (laughs) There are plenty of words out there where I could use them in a sentence and understand the context if somebody else used it in a sentence. But if somebody straight up asked me what the word meant, wouldn't really be able to tell you plenty of words like that for me i look up words all the time to make sure i'm using them oh yes oh i found a subreddit called word of the day and they're all words like that they're words that people use all the time but maybe you just need some more solid ground on what they mean it's fantastic at this point the mariner shifts the conversation to anula asking about the marks on her back and helen says that they are nothing they are just fanciful things And to be more specific, they are essentially scribbles that the art department thought looked enough like coordinates written out in Chinese, but they were, you know, not quite. (laughs) They are very fanciful, for sure. Mm -hmm. And the Mariner, drawing on past experience with Helen and Enola, asks, like what she draws. 
And it's then that Helen jumps in saying that Enola draws what she sees. She's like a mirror. And everybody on the atoll considered her, and the mariner says, a freak. Yeah, we're really starting to burrow in on the similarities between the mariner and Enola. Helen hesitates to label Enola because her and the mariner have discussed this enough that she knows that whatever label she puts on Enola from the atoll is going to be the same label that the mariner is going to put on himself. And I think she hesitates to put a label on this attitude. So when she replies and says, I just thought she was special. Yeah. It's partly about Enola, but it's also partly about the mariner. Right. So she doesn't see the mariner as a freak. She sees him as special. He's just different. And yeah. Different's okay. This statement, or maybe the culmination of the conversation they've had all this time, prompts the mariner to hold out the crayon to Helen. And she leans forward to take it, but he tilts it back because he wants to specify he's not giving Enola the crayon. It is just, and Helen finishes the sentence this time. I love how there's that doublet of him finishing her sentence, her finishing his sentence, where she specifies alone. And the mariner says, right, I'm not giving it to her. That was very well done. Most of this conversation was very well done. I thought the acting between Helen and the Mariner was very nice. The writing was very nice. The timing and the way it all played out, it was very nice. It was very lovely. I do take issue with the fact that he is loaning Enola a consumable. Yeah, if I want to get pedantic about it, it's not so much a loan, he's lending it. Because lending something is giving it to someone with the expectation to get that item back. Lending does not imply an exchanging of goods in return for the item changing hands. A loan implies that interest is going to be paid back, which can't happen with a crayon. Right. He's not even going to get his item back. If he gets any of it back before it's completely consumed, it will be a smaller piece of crayon. Yeah. So he's lending her the crayon, right. not loaning it, if we want to be <laughs> super picky about it. But this sentiment is lovely. It tells us that he has made a connection between himself and Enola. Enola doesn't know it yet, but Enola is so ready for connections that the fact that it happens with her off screen is totally fine. Mm -hmm. Totally fine that she does not participate in the Mariner making a connection with her. With the crayon changing hands, that brings us to the end of the clip for this week. So come back next time. Helen will say goodnight. The Mariner will search for meaning, and Enola will get a swimming lesson. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 49. We'll see you next time.